You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined by my amazing co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. How y'all been doing? Doing well. Summer has hit here in Nashville, nice and warm and toasty. Here in Vegas too, kind of with a vengeance. <laughs> we have been having rain, rain, and more rain. Is that normal summertime Texas behavior? Um, it is normal end of May and September thing. And so it's usually like June is some rain. I think we've definitely had more than our normal share for us being, you know, just at the beginning of June but it'll, it'll taper off. And then by August, everything's as crispy brown as it can be. So mm. I'd, I would rather it rain because we end up under water restrictions every summer. So we were on an aquifer. And um, so, which is essentially like an underground water supply. And it's really interesting um, because apparently they can't, I would think that they should be able to with sonar and all these types of things but they don't know how deep our aquifer goes. How do you spell that? I've never heard an aquifer. A-Q-U-I-F-E-R. Wow. Okay. It's like an underground lake and like there's huh. areas where the water, water seeps through the limestone and it refills the lake. And so we know through like historical data, like where kind of the top is and how far down it's gone and at what points like we quote, start getting worried, but no one's ever been able to determine how deep the aquifer actually is, which I do not understand with deep sea capabilities and different yeah. types of things. Um, I don't know if it's because of layers or something like that, but I personally think science should be able to tell me how deep the aquifer is. So I know if I can actually <laughs> be watering my lawn or not, but you know, what do I know? <laughs> Very interesting. Well, what have you guys been up to this weekend? Anything fun? Last weekend, my family took a, a short little trip to San Diego where, you know, we drove and just hung out on the beach for a couple of days, played in tide pools and and just kind of hung out. So nice and, and laid back and um, some well-needed rest. But what have you guys been up to? Well, I met up this weekend with some of my friends from high school. And, and that's always fun because we maybe, our group meets up maybe once every three or four years or so. And it's just... It's so interesting to have a history with, you know, my friends from, I mean, several of us went to elementary school together. We've known each other for years and it's just, it's so funny how we all grow in different ways and just, just kind of some interesting facts about my friends. Like two of them have like chickens and and have their own eggs that they, right. And they don't live on farms. They live in the city. (laughs) And one of my friends is really into guns and she knows all about all these different guns. And she was talking about cleaning her guns and just totally different person than I would have expected to have a bunch of guns. And, you know, it's just, it's just funny. You know, you just, I guess we all grow in different ways as we get older. (laughs) Have you guys ever had an interesting experience like that at a high school reunion or with old friends? It's been a long time since I've been to a high school reunion. I think I went to my 10 year one and like the last one they had, well, at one of them, I had a family member in the hospital and I think I just skipped one. 
I don't know. Oh, so you're one of those. You're you're one of the ones that don't go to your high school reunions then. I, you know, it's like I said, I went to one of them and I had a good time. Um, <laughs> the other one, like I said, I had one of my kids was in the hospital, and then the other one I just didn't go to. I should I should go to another one. I mean, I I practice in the same town that I grew up in, so it, I run into people that I you know, and I'm friends with them on like Facebook and that type of thing, and I see people in town and you know, that type of thing. And when we have like big events in the city, I run into people all the time. So I I think part of it is I, you know, I kind of have a level of interaction with people I still have a relationship with. Yeah. So that that's the important thing to me, you know, and not necessarily like going to like that one event. Well, you know, it's funny. I I find as being always living away from where my high school was, it's always the people that live in the town that never come. Like my, even my good friends that live in the town, I'm like, well, come on, I'm going to be there. Let's go. They're like, no, but maybe we can eat dinner like, you know, on Saturday night or something instead of going to the Friday night thing. I don't know what it is. What about you, Carrie? Do you ever, do you ever go visit your high school friends or go to your high school reunion or? So I've never been to a high school reunion. My, and part of that is because every year that they've had one, like I was always, was always away and it was, was always far enough that it made it really challenging. And, and that just the timing, because, you know, when I was in medical school, the other, the next one, um, my tenure, which is the first year that we really had one that was significant. I was in residency at the time, I guess, maybe fellowship. No, I guess I was in residence. Probably early fellowship. No, 10 years because it was four. You would have been in residency. College and four years of residency. So I was in residency and I couldn't get back. And then I don't think we had a 15th. And then my 20th was in the midst of COVID. And so that got rescheduled because I was actually thinking about going to that. And then, of course, it got rescheduled. So it's going to be sometime this fall. Um, and, and it'll just kind of depend because I have to travel back to it. And I see you know, my longest time friend I see every year at Christmas because our families have been friends for so long that like, she's just kind of built in. Um, And Mm -hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the other people I hear about through the grapevine, but I don't ever see anymore. So it'd be kind of nice to see them, but actually getting back takes a fair amount of maneuvering. And when I struggle to get time on weekends, just, just to exist anyway, (laughs) um, it takes, it makes it a lot harder to say, all right, how am I going to get back to Arizona? Make sure call is covered. Make sure my husband can go too because he's got his own medical practice. No call schedule to worry with. So I just don't, I'm a terrible person to keep in communication. Like I have one friend who keeps in touch with absolutely everyone and she's so good at it. She remembers all the birthdays and all the names of everybody important and, and all those things. And I am, I am not good at any of that. Um, so that's a certain skill that certain people are gifted with. Mm-hmm. I will say it's really fun though, to kind of get those people together. And surprisingly, actually I texted everybody like a week and a half beforehand and everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. Cause we all say, Oh, let's get together. Let's get together. And we don't. So I thought, well, I'm just going to do it. And so I was really surprised that all but one person that I asked to come all showed up and we literally, we sit in there for four hours and eight dinner. <laughs> it's just, it's just fun to talk to people who, have known you since you were a little kid and you have all these stories and, you know, it's just fun to, like, and sometimes stories you don't even remember, they remember and vice versa. And so it's just, it was really fun. We had a really good time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's go to our question of the day. So our question of the day is, can you address 
recurrent trisomy pregnancies in women with no translocations, new research into, quote, sticky chromosomes, question mark. I am a 40-year-old and have had three naturally conceived trisomy pregnancies, uh, trisomy 21 twice and trisomy 16, and through a wonderful network of women who have chosen to terminate medically complicated pregnancies, I've met others who have experienced the same at much younger ages. I would question, is there an understanding of women who may have a reason for sticky chromosomes versus simply premature ovarian aging? Thank you. Love your podcast. So ladies, what do you think? Well, I think it really is kind of semantics. I mean, I don't know that anybody knows there's such a thing as sticky chromosomes. I mean, really what it boils down to when you're 40 and you're trying to get pregnant, you have increased risk of chromosomal abnormalities. And unfortunately, we don't have any magic bullet for that. There's no great way to correct that if you're conceiving naturally. And so that's why a lot of times we talk to patients about doing IVF and doing genetic testing, because, you know, if you're predisposed to that, which women beyond 35 have a much higher risk of having trisomies and just chromosomal abnormalities in general, um, if if you're predisposed to that, you know, we can pick an embryo out that hopefully is normal. Sometimes we don't find normal ones. And in fact, sometimes in women over 40, we don't find any. And it's not that that's good news, but at least it kind of, I think in some patients, it sort of helps them realize that maybe it's time to move on to donor egg or something like that, as opposed to continuing to try and get pregnant, having, you know, multiple miscarriages. I'm just thinking back to our episodes with Amy Jones, where we were talking with her about what is the percentage of normals versus abnormals that you see and how that breaks down by year. And the thing out of those episodes that has stuck with me more than than anything was that she said, even with a, a young person who is healthy, who has no issues um, under the age of 35, 60% are going to be normal, which means that seven, which, yeah, 60% is normal. That means that 70% is going to be abnormal. Sorry, my math <laughs> Good is, math, Gary. <laughs> yeah, my, my math is questionable today. But, you know, those 40% that are abnormal, that's a really high percentage. And so when you're looking at fairly small numbers of chromosomes that you get, like I tell my patients, statistics are fabulous when you were dealing with a football stadium worth of people. But when you're dealing with one couple, all of that goes out the door. And so I don't, I don't know that I've seen research that is focused specifically on chromosomes that don't break away in the manner that they should outside of a translocation and and translocations are a totally different ball game. But, um, you know, I could, I could see where there's some, you know, some spindle defect where it doesn't pull them quite as well. I don't know why they would focus more specifically on one chromosome than another. But these were, you know, this was a pregnancy with two different chromosomes involved. One was 21 and one was 16. And we all know 16 is the most common abnormality that you have in products of conception. That's a really common one, the most common one. Right. And and 21 is um, is certainly not that far behind. So Mm -hmm. it may just be laws of, laws of averages and what, what is common is common. Yeah. And I also want to make the point of, so um, our listener mentioned women who were younger having these pregnancies that were, were chromosomally abnormal. And even though we always focus on, you know, women over 35 have an increased risk of having a chromosomal abnormality. But when you look at sheer numbers, most children babies born with chromosomal abnormalities are actually born from women who are less than 35 because there's more of them having babies. 
So the fact that there is a population of people who are having chromosomally abnormal um, babies is is not surprising. It, it, it's part of, unfortunately, human reproduction. Um, what we know is most of those chromosomally abnormal embryos are never going to implant. Most that are going to implant are going to be lost in miscarriage, usually in the first trimester, and a small proportion that does increase statistically significantly after the age of 35. Um, so it, it's important to kind of uh, understand how all those things kind of play together. And, and I can say clinically, when we have patients who do IVF with PGTA chromosome testing to look to see if we have chromosomally normal embryos, that most of our patients with recurrent pregnancy loss, most of them end up with normal embryos. And so um, it, it almost, what it appears is that sometimes those embryos stick longer in some women than they do in others, which is what we, I, I think we kind of see in our practices. What do you think about that, guys? Well, just overall, I think, you know, essentially, if you look at somebody at 40, which I think is the age of our listener, if you have 10 eggs and you put sperm with 10 eggs, nine out of 10 eggs are going to be genetically abnormal and they're probably not going to be the same thing. Highest group is trisomies. So, you know, I, I, I kind of think overall, my answer to this question is I think it's just unfortunately an age-related condition. I, I don't know that it's necessarily a recurrent sticky chromosome or abnormality. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the the most, the highest likelihood is just random chance um, because people when people have unfortunate events, they look for meaning in them uh, and meaning behind them and an etiology behind them. And so I think you're always going to have a subset of people where they tend to stick and, you know, it's always possible that there's something biologic behind it and we just don't have a good etiology. But right now, even if we did have an etiology, the treatment's still going to likely be the same, which is IVF with PGTA. Absolutely. So it's kind of an answer answer non-answer in some respects. Very good. Very good. Well, today we are going to discuss reproductive options for women in same-sex relationships. Yay. Yay. Good stuff. Good stuff. So (laughs) Carrie, what, when you have a female same-sex couple come into your office, what, what should they expect? So there's a bunch of different things to talk about. And I always find that these initial visits tend to be a little bit more conversation heavy than, than many of my heterosexual couples or, or single couples, uh, single couples. I guess you can't really have a single, (laughs) single couples. And so the, the conversation that I have, so in addition to the initial, the standard initial visit stuff, which is history and, um, and background and all of those things, I always kind of lead with, uh, what, what do you guys think you want to do? Because presumably, and this varies by couple, of course, but presumably instead of having just one set of, you know, the female organs, one set of male organs and all the gametes and everything to go with that, you have two fully functioning sets. And so that means that you have greater options. So one of the first questions I always lead with is, all right, have you guys looked into this at all? Do you have friends who have done this? Do you have an idea of what you want to do? Um, you know, do you want me to start from scratch and go through everything? Or do you really have something set in mind? Because oftentimes when I'm talking to these couples, they will have it very set in their mind of, you know, one woman very much wants to carry and the other one very much does not want to carry. And then who's providing eggs um, varies. 
And then sometimes they will have really definitive ideas about where they're getting sperm from, whether it's going to be a donor bank or a friend or a family member. And of course, all of that is going to influence how we go. So it we usually start with a broad question of, all right, what do you know? And is there something you think you want to do? Because some people want to go very much without technology. And we just start teasing through all of that. And so it ends up being a, a little bit lengthier discussion because I need to make sure they know what their options are because that's also going to influence. Like if we know that we're going to do just one woman through everything, then I'm going to pay less attention to the other woman's medical history and focus on the woman who's providing eggs and, and uh, uterus. But, um, but I tend to start with an open-ended question of, all right, well, do you think you know what you want to do? Do you know what the options are? And, and if they don't, then I lead from there. I think the other thing with same-sex couples is, you know, kind of the presumption is when you come in that you're going to be using donor sperm. And that's that's not always the case. But I would say with the majority of same-sex couples, it at least starts with the use of donor sperm. And so because we use donor sperm, whether it's anonymous or whether, you know, it's a known donor, the FDA gets involved. And, you know, the idea behind the FDA is they want to make sure that, the person who's going to carry the pregnancy is healthy. They want to make sure the partner's healthy and they want to make sure the sperm donor's healthy. And so kind of the, the difficult or more expensive part of that is in order for us to be able to do donor insemination, we have to do a lot of testing and we have to do it on both partners. And a lot of times I get the question of, well, I'm not carrying the pregnancy, so why do I need to have blood testing done? And, and the reason that is, is because we want to make sure that you're healthy, that you don't have hepatitis or something like that, because ultimately, if the woman who gets pregnant, if your partner gets pregnant and we find out she has hepatitis, we may think it's coming from the sperm donor and it may be coming from you if we don't know that you're healthy. So that's why the FDA sort of requires that we do that. And one thing to clarify here, when we're talking about same-sex relationships, we're talking about um, same natal sex. So this is not necessarily a conversation about trans women who in that case would be born with um, the male reproductive organs and, and may or may not still have more functional use of them, kind of depending on where they are in that journey. This is talking about two, two females from natal sex, meaning this is what they are born with and this is the biology that we are working with. So just to kind of clarify that, we're not, we're not glossing over our trans patients. We're talking about two, two human beings coming to us with a pair of ovaries and a uterus, presumably for each of them. But we still, the FDA still would make us get labs on both partners, right? Because if you're sexually active. The FDA does not actually require that. that. That is something that I know our labs require. And that is a practice dependent thing. Now, when we're talking about, so I was going to kind of dive into anonymous versus known sperm donor. So the when we're looking at sperm donors, one way or the other, that's that's really the part where the FDA has has the control because anytime you're introducing essentially an outside source, just like in an organ donation, all, all those things are going to have to the infectious disease labs and medical history and sexual history and all, all those things are going to have to be eyes dotted and t's crossed. And so, what are some benefits of using a known donor and some benefits of using an anonymous donor and cons of both as well. So starting with an anonymous donor, because that's probably what I would say 90, 95% of my people yeah. go with. Like that that in the US. In the US, that tends to be the most common. 
Um, with an anonymous donor, you're looking through a sperm bank and there's, I would say probably roughly around a half dozen big sperm banks within the United States. It does not matter where they are physically located. Um, the biggest and longest standing is probably California cryobank, but there's about a half dozen others that are, um, that are very common, um, and frequently used. And so, when we are looking at sperm donors um, or patients are looking at sperm donors through a bank, they are just going through and saying, okay, we are sorting by characteristics. We really want someone with whatever height, whatever hair color, whatever ethnic background, whatever life experience. Um, and these websites have it all sorted off. I mean, I tell, I tell people it's online shopping at its finest. And <laughs> sperm banks have all of these patients already tested, their sperm is already banked and ready to go. Um, and so it makes it a lot easier for patients. So that's some of the advantages for an anonymous bank, but that's not everything. Right. And another big advantage of going through a sperm bank is all of the legal stuff is yeah. taken care of. Yeah. So when you purchase that sperm, it is yours. Okay. And there, all the kind of theoretical parental rights and things like that, 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 that legal stuff has been taken care of. Now, Abby, what happens when we're, when we're using a known donor? So with a known donor, we require a contract that basically says kind of what's going to happen. And I don't know if that's true of every center, but, but the tricky part about that is even if you come up with a contract, you and your partner come up with a contract with sperm donor and the sperm donor says, Oh, you know, I'm just doing this as a favor to you. I just don't, I just want to donate sperm to you. And, you know, even with a legal contract, the problem is if something happens, you know, eight, 10, 12 years down the road, maybe the guy never has a child and he's like, you know, I know I have this biologic child. I really want to have some contact with this child. It's hard to know how the courts will rule based on what is written in that legal document. So, uh, you know, I think you have to be a little wary of using a known donor because you just don't know what's going to happen down the road. So when we have known donors in our clinic, we treat them just like if somebody was coming to donate sperm in a sperm bank. They're going to have to go through all the FDA clearance. They're going to have to collect. They're going to have to have their sperm stored for a certain number of days. And at the end of that storage period, we're going to have to repeat all of that FDA blood work as well. We also um, require there be all the legal stuff going on. And, you know, and I do have to say, like in the United States, we definitely tend toward anonymous donation. I've had some people use a known donor. I, I find most people find it to be a little more cumbersome than what they really want to deal with. Probably a little more expensive too by the time you do all the blood work on them and everything. People oftentimes come in thinking, oh, I'm going to have my really good friend donate because that's going to be cheaper and easier. And I would say ultimately it ends up being, depending on how many children you want and how you are getting there, uh, I would say it oftentimes ends up more expensive to do as a known donor when you factor in legal. And oftentimes you're factoring in psych as well, because when you have a known donor, you absolutely have to have psych done on both parties mm -hmm. to ensure that not only are they both okay with this, but they're okay doing it in a known situation, which is different than when you have 
an anonymous setup. So another thing that we do at our clinic, and I'm not sure if you guys do that, but if anybody's using third-party reproduction, so donor eggs, donor sperm, gestational carriers, donor embryos, whatever it is, all parties involved have to visit with a counselor to discuss things. Implications counseling. Yes, (laughs) yes. Disclosure, non-disclosure. How do you tell? When do you tell? Who do you tell? All those types of things, just to make sure everybody's on the the same platform. Well, and with disclosure, and we've talked about this in other episodes as well, you know, really non-disclosure almost is really a thing of the past now when we're talking about genetics, because, you know, even today, if you do something like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, if your sibling also did that, you're going to come up as a, as a match with that person. And so, you know, if your child is conceived with a sperm donor, an anonymous sperm donor or known sperm donor, at some point, they're going to know, probably be able to connect with some of their siblings. And so, you know, that's important to discuss with implications counseling to, you know, how are we going to tell the child and what are we going to tell them and and that sort of thing. Absolutely. So once we get past like whose sperm we're going to (laughs) use. So once we get past that, I kind of think of it as really relatively two divergent processes. So either one, trying IUI in a certain partner. Intrauterine insemination where we take the sperm and put it up inside the uterine cavity. Exactly. So doing that in a one of the partners and that decision can be made on a variety of, of basis or doing what we call, we usually call it reciprocal IVF. Carrie, y'all call it shared maternity. Shared maternity. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I like that too. I like that term. So let, let's kind of cover inseminations. Who's a good candidate for this type of thing? So for inseminations, you need someone who has um, decent egg number, egg quality. Uh, Open tubes are probably the biggest you absolutely have to have because if the tubes aren't open, then it doesn't matter how much sperm is there. It's not making it through. Um, You need to have someone who has um, menstrual cycles and they don't necessarily have to have them spontaneously because we can give meds to help with that, especially in our PCOS type patients. We help with that. Um, but someone who is willing to provide the eggs and provide the uterus for the pregnancy is healthy enough to do both of those, goes through all the testing and, and is willing to proceed. And usually with IUI, it is more imperative to have what's called CMV testing. Um, we get it with IVF, but the medical implications are a little bit bigger with IUI than they are with IVF. And, and CMV stands for cytomegalovirus. It's a common cold. 80% of adults have had it by the time they're about 40 years old. And so it's really very, very common. It sounds big and it sounds scary. But what I tell my patients is, frankly, I am more worried about you driving in Las Vegas traffic than I think (laughs) about whether or not you actually have this and whether this becomes an issue. But we do, because we're thorough, we, we check for it. And so in the woman, we're looking to see if she's ever had that infection. So does she have antibodies or does she not have antibodies? And then we have her search for her sperm donor based on that information, because if she's positive, meaning she's had the infection at some point, and again, she would never know it's a cold along with another dozen other viruses that can cause a cold. Um, if she's had it, then we don't really care about the sperm one way or the other. It can be positive, negative, no big deal. But if she's never had it, then we tend to recommend getting a CMV negative donor because there is a theoretical risk that the donor could have had CMV at the time of donating because it's a cold. So it's not necessarily going to show up in a big, bad, and ugly way. And that it could be passed through the sperm. She could have it. 
And if she gets it for the first time during pregnancy, that has birth defect implications. And so we go through all of that. But but like I said, usually at the end of it, I say, look, you you drove here through Las Vegas traffic. That was a riskier thing than even if you're negative and you have a positive donor. But but it's something we can control and it's relatively easy. So we do. You know, as a side note, I usually tell patients it's a lot like chicken pox because a lot of patients, even in this day and age, have had chicken pox. And I say, it's a virus just like chicken pox. If you've had it as a child, no big deal. If you get it like chicken pox as an adult, it is a big deal and it can cause issues with the baby. And so, because most people, when you say CMB, they look at you like, what in the world are you talking about? But it's just a viral illness. It's a very common question that I have amongst my same-sex couples who are looking at gain donor. My blood type is blank. Does it matter? Abby? Um, it's not that big of a deal. You know, just like if you had a partner who was a male partner, you probably wouldn't, you know, screen him to be a partner <laughs> based on what his blood type was. But, you know, as, if, if you have an opportunity to choose, which you do as a female, I mean, that's the beauty of using donor sperm is you can pick the sperm that's right for you. If you have a positive blood type, it doesn't matter. If you have a negative blood type, it can matter because sometimes there can be issues with antibody formation during the pregnancy. And it may not necessarily affect the pregnancy, the initial pregnancy, but could affect a, a subsequent pregnancy down the road if you're negative and the donor's positive. So usually I recommend that if my patient's negative, I recommend that they choose a negative donor also. Carrie, what do you do in that situation? I tend to find that people have a difficult enough time finding a donor without throwing that in there. I mean, I will, I will certainly tell them about it. Um, but oftentimes they're looking, they have something in mind regardless. And yes, you can have antibodies form when you have a woman who has a blood type that's negative. And but we have, we have good things to help prevent that from happening. But you would agree though, all things being equal, if you have two donors that you like the same and one's your blood type is negative and his blood type is negative, wouldn't you, you, wouldn't you recommend choosing the negative donor, all things being equal? All things being equal. Yes. But I find it's unusual that all things are, are equal because the genetic testing component throws such a big wrench into everything. Yeah. That usually all things are not equal. And so, yes, if all things are equal and you've got a negative woman and she's choosing between a negative and a positive donor, yes, go with the negative. But I find that that is very unlikely to be the case because usually we're dealing with bigger issues in the genetic testing which goes back to all of the carrier screening discussions that we've had. Because what is different about a same-sex female couple on those carrier screens, looking at whether or not the woman providing eggs and the donor providing sperm carry the same genes, that the, the testing done on the sperm donors varies based on where they are, um, how long ago they froze, what options the sperm bank chose at that time. Because um, like when I think about it, when I started residency, we thought we were hot stuff because we checked for CF, <laughs> SMA, and cell anemia um, and, and fragile X. Now the panel that I routinely order has 301 diseases on it. And so, and that's in, you know, all of 10, 12, 13, crap, that number's going up years. And, and so it gets a little bit more challenging when I'm talking with my ladies, cause I'm saying, okay, we can do this one of two ways. You can either choose a donor who's had one of these extensive panels, and then we'll do an extensive panel on you and make sure that there's nothing that's crossing. We can do a panel on you, and then we can search for a donor for whatever you have that the woman carries, confirm that the guy doesn't carry, 
Or you can just choose a donor, a male donor with nothing on all of his genetic screening. But that's misleading because patients don't always know to realize they'll see, oh, donor tested negative for XYZ. They don't realize that that may be all he was tested for as opposed to one of these huge 300 panel diseases. And so that has gotten to be a much more complicated discussion in the past couple of years. And I think a lot of people don't understand too that that we do a certain type of screen. I think you guys do, and we use a company called NBTA. Well, there's some other ones that are around and, you know, every so often they kind of reevaluate kind of what they have on the panel. And so I always say- Their technologies and what is, what is available. Exactly. So I always say, make sure whatever you're tested for, you make sure that the donor's been tested for whatever that abnormality is that you've tested positive for. And a lot of the screens, a lot of the, the testing overlaps, but sometimes it doesn't. So you just want to make sure that whatever you test positive for, you make sure that the donor has been tested and he's tested negative for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, if somebody is choosing to go down the path of intrauterine insemination with or without additional medications, what what does that kind of look like? So I tend to use the additional medications just because it bumps the success rate a little bit. And donor sperm isn't cheap. And donor sperm isn't cheap. So we want to make sure that we know for sure when you're ovulating because ovulation predictor kits can be very reliable, but they can also be a royal pain in your backside. Yeah. Um, because, and, and I always tell people, get the ones that are a straight smiley face, nothing more, nothing less, or, you know, a yes or no, not the color change ones, because that will drive you completely bonkers. If you've ever, seen, <laughs> if you've ever seen the paint swatch panel at like Home Depot or Lowe's and you're comparing those blues or are they the same shade or not? It will drive you bonkers. And your doctor doesn't know how to answer any better than you do usually <laughs> when you're looking at color changes. Um, and so my preference is to use medications with a trigger shot because that means that I can get the timing right for putting that sperm in. And so I tend to, to go on that. I will do natural cycles, meaning no meds. You just check a kit and let me know and we'll put the sperm in. But, um, but I tend to prefer the medicated cycles just because it adds an extra layer of precision. And if, if a same-sex couple is coming to a fertility office for treatment, then that usually indicates they want that extra level of precision rather than them just ordering a, a sperm sample to go to their house for them to put it in their vagina at the appropriate time and hope for the best. So Abby, what do you normally do? Um, I do that a lot of times. I think if it's a younger patient, particularly if she has a really good egg number, sometimes I'll say, well, let's try IUI for a few months just based on your cycle. Although I will bring her in for ultrasound. So I don't, I don't routinely put younger women on meds if women have irregular cycles or if they really want to be on medicines, I'll do that. Um, it just, it ups their chances a little bit of, as you know, twins and sometimes triplets. And so I don't start off immediately with that, but I would agree that I think if you're kind of spending the time and money to do this, I think it's uh, the best thing is to bring you in for ultrasound so that we can really be precise and know exactly when to um, inseminate you with the sperm. So I bring them in for ultrasound. If the egg looks good, size-wise, we trigger and then do insemination shortly thereafter. So I, I'm very similar, probably a little bit closer to Carrie because I, I offer natural cycle, but we really use what I call a modified natural cycle. Um, my office is about 35 minutes away from where a kind of a longer term storage facility is. So we have to have the ability to overnight ship um, the sperm generally from whatever sperm bank it's at. So um, I take advantage of that, you know, 
36 to 48 hours <laughs> of trigger um, to get the sperm to my office. And, um, you know, I have a lot of patients that travel long distances and I, I talk about the pros and cons and I'm like, you know, there's certain things I, I, you know, I'm, if you're young, I'm not going to do pure injectable medications because <laughs> that's going to get you too many babies and we don't want that to happen. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to gently nudge things in, in the right direction and kick things up a, a few percentage points if, if that's what you're comfortable doing. Um, so if somebody is in a female same-sex relationship that we are looking at doing reciprocal IVF or shared maternity, that's, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? It is. It's, it's dividing an IVF cycle between two women, which actually I find a lot of couples really like because for a couple of reasons. Number one, one woman is not going through everything. And number two, we have, have the ability to have both a biologic mom and a, a gestational mom. And so it gives, even though both women would always be mom to their children, it gives them both a more active role in it, which I have found a lot of couples really, really like. Yeah, I think some women feel more comfortable carrying the pregnancy. I, I just had a couple recently that one partner had already had a baby. And, you know, like you said, the other partner wanted to be part of it, wanted to, you know, give the genetics, but she really didn't want to carry the pregnancy. And I, I tend to find that a lot with couples sometimes that one person really wants to carry and the other person doesn't. But the beauty of it is if down the road, if, if the first partner that stimulates makes several embryos, ultimately, you know, both partners can carry at some point. And you really aren't quite as beholden to the FDA testing because that that partner, the female partner, is not considered a gestational carrier. She's a, which is nice because it means that you don't have to consider extra FDA testing on the woman who provides eggs in the same way that you need to for the sperm. And so that saves on some time and expense and headache and annoyance factor too. Now, what would you say other than the shared experience, what is the biggest difference between reciprocal IVF or shared maternity versus doing IUI? What are a couple major thought processes <laughs> that our patients well, need, to th- need to think about? The major everything with what we talk about, unfortunately, is cost. So it's a big difference in cost and probably a little bit more expensive, or it is a little more expensive than if one woman was doing everything. If we were stimulating one woman, fertilizing the embryos, um, putting them in their body, because we do, you have to do different cell cultures, or at least that's the way we do it in our lab. And so, you know, it might be a little bit more expensive, but it's still going to be way more expensive than doing IUI. IUI is much, much cheaper. Um, and then the other issue is success rates. So success rates would be significantly higher with IVF if we have a genetically normal embryo that we can transfer back versus IUI, which probably best case scenario, that would be a five to 10% chance of success per, uh, per try. So what would we be expecting as a potential success rate with a chromosomally normal embryo with an IVF cycle? Probably on the order of 65 to 70% chance per transfer with one embryo. I would not necessarily agree on all the financial aspects of it. I would say certainly one-to-one IVF is way more expensive than IUI, no doubt about that. But when you have a same-sex female couple that wants multiple children and you run the long game, then it actually may even out more in the sense that if you're creating, if you have the ability to create multiple embryos in one cycle. So let's say you've got a couple where they're both in their, you know, mid twenties, early thirties, somewhere in there where they're going to make a pretty decent number of embryos and they want to have 
two, three, four kids, then it actually make, may make more sense to do an IVF cycle, get a ton of embryos, freeze them, and then thaw and transfer. Because each IUI, you have a very low chance of success and you have to factor the age component in because if they're going to age into having to do IVF based on the age of the woman providing eggs, that's a factor. And if you know that you're going for multiple kids, you know each IUI cycle if you hit it on the first try, that's phenomenal. But if it takes you multiple tries to get there and you multiply that by multiple children and multiple sperm vials each time, it starts to add up more. And so I usually pull back and do family planning because if a couple just wants one kid, that's an easy economic analysis. The answer is usually IUI. And if that doesn't work, then you go to IVF. But if they're looking at a bigger family, then then you have to look at some of the financial and other family planning aspects to it. I think one big part of the conversation, and this is something I usually ask at my first visit, is are both women wanting to create embryos or babies at some time with their own eggs? I think that has that has a big part of it. I yeah. also like to have that piece of information because if I have one partner that may be older or maybe they could be the same age, but when I do ovarian, if they're both interested, I usually try to run ovarian reserve testing on both of them just to make sure I, I, I don't want to miss, oh, your ovaries are acting like 10 years older than you are and we happen to do it on your partner first. It's still your decision, but I, I might counsel you that mm, time's ticking a little bit more on one person than the other. And we may want to move with baby with that partner first. Well, and the other thing to consider too, and Carrie kind of hit on this, touched on this earlier, was the other factor is uterine factors. Because occasionally we see partners that are a little bit older and that tend to have more fibroids. So the older we all get, the more likely we are to get fibroids. And so if there's a uterine factor, if one of the partners has a medical complication like diabetes or has some heart issues or some other medical issues you know, all things being considered, that probably would not be the person that would be do a real good job of carrying the pregnancy. Um, the person who has the least medical complications would probably be the best to carry the pregnancy. And the person who also has the higher AMH would probably be the better person to be stimulated. Very good. Any last thoughts? Of, we, we covered a lot of, we covered a <laughs> lot of ground today. A lot of ground. I was going to say, I don't know that we went into anything in, in huge detail, but we did cover a ton of ground. Um, just because there's, there's really so many options. I mean, it's just, it's really important to go through everything. The other thing that I would say is that same-sex female couples are prone to the same 15% infertility percentages that affect, yeah. mm -hmm. that affect heterosexual couples. And I would say that in general, same-sex female couples, in my experience, when they're going through, they tend to have better tolerance, better reserves. They're less stressed going through it. However, when they encounter that they are in that 15% of patients with infertility, where it just doesn't go as easily as, as we thought, that ends up being maybe a little bit more traumatic because they come in thinking like, oh yeah, I'm going to have to do whatever it is for treatment, but then I'm going to get pregnant right away. And, and you still have to factor in their they're subject to the same biological laws that everybody else is. And, yeah. and that that plays in as well. That's why we do the testing. That's why we give the meds. That's why we go through everything because we're trying to minimize that from the outset. But a lot of the same biological rules apply. 
Yeah, and I think that's a great point to note because I tell a lot of my same-sex couples to be encouraging. You know, after I meet, if they haven't gotten pregnant after three or four cycles, we kind of regroup and talk. And I always say, you know, if you were a heterosexual couple, you would have tried for 12 months before you'd ever come to see me. And so you've really only had three shots at it. And maybe it's just just kind of bad luck. And so when I say that to be encouraging, not to be discouraging, that, you know, maybe it's just tincture of time. We just have to try a little bit longer. Yeah, but unfortunately... As I said, donor sperm isn't cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's expensive. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've done a great job with this today. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. And be sure to tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertility.sunsensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or to submit specific questions that you have about infertility. All the questions answered on the podcast will be answered anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye. Bye.